Hello, everyone, around the world and around the corner here in the U.S. of A. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again coming to you from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. By popular demand, last June in 2010, we embarked on a chronological overview of China's imperial dynasties from Xia to Qing. We began with Da Yu, Yu the Great, taming the flooding of the Yellow River 4,200 years ago. And today we will finish off the last and final imperial dynasty. Now, this last dynasty has been dying in slow motion over the period of the last four episodes, but today I can assure you, to spare you the trouble of fast-forwarding to the end, that indeed the Qing dynasty is ultimately put out of its misery by about the 40th minute of this podcast. So let's begin today where we left off last week. Where did we leave off? Yes, uh, 1895, the Ma Guan Tiao the Treaty of Shimonoseki. This was so degrading and humiliating a treaty, Sino-Japanese relations can still feel the faint after-effects over a century later. We reviewed the terms of the treaty and how China was hardly in a position to make demands, and as I said, it was only the attempted assassination of the Hongzhang in Japan during the negotiations that caused the Japanese to stop where they did and not demand more from their former big brother on the other side of the Yellow Sea. So we pick up today in the aftermath of the Treaty of Shimonoseki and what happened after Japan annihilated China in the Sino-Japanese War. All the great military and economic powers of the day who had interests in China, both great and small, took notice of how easily China's forces fell to Japanese might and how toothless and decrepit the Qing Dynasty had become. The terms of the treaty were well known in the international community, so once everyone got a whiff of it, it was open season again, and the bad old days of Western imperialism in the Far East took off in earnest. So if the Opium War and resulting treaties of Nanjing and later Tianjin didn't shock the Chinese into real action, this time, with the Treaty of Shimonoseki, they really woke up and decided to take real action. In the spring of 1895, several youngish Chinese students and scholars all met in Beijing to participate in the annual Qin Shir exams. The way it worked in the old Confucian civil service exams, you took the exams locally and received the Shengyuan degree first. Then you moved on to the provincial exams to get your your Juren degree. And once you jumped through those two hoops successfully, you came to the capital to stand for the national civil service exam and the coveted Jinshir degree. Once you were a Jinshir, barring any conduct that would banish you from the bureaucracy, you were set for life. And so was your family back in the town or village where you came from. So anyways, these several young men passed the exam and so outraged and shocked were they at the terms of the treaty that they sent these long memorials to the imperial court, as was their right back then, In these memorials, they called for resistance against Japan, as well as a whole number of economic, industrial, and administrative reforms. The two main voices amongst this large group of scholars were 22-year-old Liang Qi Chao and his mentor, the elder 37-year-old Kang Youwei. Kang had made a name for himself for his writings that explain the relevancy of Confucius in modern Chinese society. Now, both Kang and Liang were both radicals for their day, but like many radicals, they hedged their bets and still walked down the road of the civil service exams with their eight-legged essays and all. They were the ones who stood for modernization from within 
the Chinese tradition. They didn't go for all-out westernization or copying western ways and transplanting them in China. The 24-year-old Guangxu emperor read the memorials and was very moved by them. Contained in the memorials, among other things, was a desperate plea to reach out to the expertise and experiences of the worldwide network of Huaqiao, or overseas Chinese, spread out and thriving tremendously across Southeast Asia. If you compare the kind of reforms that these two guys were espousing, and you look at uh, Hong Gan, his reforms that he called for during Taiping Rebellion days, they weren't very different. And if you recall, Hong Gan, he was the charismatic and westernized cousin of the Taiping Tianguo king, Hong Xiuquan. So we can see now Hong Gan was a little ahead of his time. China wasn't quite ready in the 1850s and 60s to take this big leap. So, Guangxu is really affected by these memorials. He had reached his majority in 1887, and Cixi had officially retired, but you know, still ruled from behind a screen until 1889. He was 17, and his aunt, the Dowager Empress Cixi, she was only 54 and at the top of her game, so to speak. Guangxu was a very weak force of nature. He was not a robust or healthy individual, spoke in a very weak and reedy voice, and had a speech impediment, and had grown up living this lonely, no doubt depraved life, totally in the hands of these eunuchs who were always up to no good. So you can imagine being so weak-willed and utterly meek in his character, he was the perfect puppet for any dowager empress to use. The real power of the palace in the 1890s and at the turn of the century mainly rested in two people. First was the emperor's dowager Cixi. Second was the chief eunuch, the Zongguan Taijian, known as Li Lianying. If you wanted to talk to Cixi, you had to get past him. This guy controlled the access to power in the palace. He was terribly powerful, and the wealth he accumulated, thanks to his position at the palace, was legendary. All these cast of characters in the immediate orbit of the Empress Dowager lived in isolation and were kept abreast of what went on outside their bubble in the palace, but all these Manchu super elites could hardly comprehend what was being said and what it all meant. They only knew one thing, and that was all this talk they were hearing wasn't good for them. So you can imagine, with all these memorials coming into the palace, they were working overtime to figure out ways to get in the way, slow things down, and both Kang and Liang, as well as their gang, became marked men uh, of these palace high-ups. Kang Youwei, among his many poignant writings, compared China to Ottoman Turkey, and that both countries at that time were, they were great empires with a rich culture and history, but now down on their luck and both in danger of getting carved up by foreign powers. He also said, quote, the Russians are spying on us in the north, and the English are peeping at us at the west, the French are staring at us in the south, and the Japanese are watching us in the east. Our enfeebled China has been lying in the midst of a group of strong powers and soundly sleeping on top of a pile of kindling. A lot of people felt this way, and the numbers of secret societies, some open, some not, proliferated like crazy in the wake of the Treaty of Shimonoseki. I mentioned in the last podcast that once Germany used some random act of violence to seize the area around Qingdao and Jiaozhou Bay in November 1897, it it set off a scramble for similar concessions in China. When the Germans went and did this, it really invigorated the reform movement. From 1897 to 1898, you began to see more and more memorials floating around the imperial palace, all essentially calling for the same thing. On June 11th, 
1898, the emperor announces his intent to reform the government. Five days later, on the 16th, uh, Guangxu summons Kang Youwei to the palace for an audience, and from this point we have the beginning of the Hundred Days of Reform. The Wushu Bianfa, over the period of about one summer in 1898, the entire government was turned on its head and totally revamped. On paper, that is. Manchu sinecure positions in the imperial household were abolished. Redundant governorships were eliminated. Bureaus of industry, commerce, and agriculture were established. Buddhist monasteries were nationalized and turned into public schools. The examination system was changed to emphasize current events rather than the classics. In addition to this, there were also a whole slew of other reforms. No one in government wasn't affected in one way or another from all these pronouncements made by the emperor. The first ones to start complaining were military officers who didn't like any of the military reforms being called for. And of course, the Manchu aristocrats spread out throughout the palace and in the imperial government, they didn't like anything they were seeing either. Also eyeing these reforms suspiciously were hardcore conservatives, as well as all those who had already invested their lives in the current civil service exam system. Aspirants to the bureaucracy and all the riches and prestige that came with it I mean, they were dead set against any of these reforms that made their quest redundant. A huge ideological battle began to ramp up between the old versus the new. The forces of the conservatives blamed all of this opening up and dealing with foreigners as the ultimate cause for China's woes. And of course, it was the opposite. As far as what the reformers were saying, they claimed that it was China's failure to modernize that was the cause of their pitiful position in the world of nations. And as you can imagine, all those who had access to the Empress Dowager Cixi were really leaning on her for support, and she wasn't siding with anyone yet. A lot of people at the top who knew China had to reform but dreaded the consequences believed in the myth of halfway westernization. The feeling was, I mean, even amongst such early reformers as Tsung Guofan and Li Hongzhang, that China could pick and choose what reforms were suitable for China. They saw Western reforms as a box of mixed chocolates, and the Chinese leaders could just sort of pick the ones they liked and leave behind the ones they didn't like. And a lot of time was wasted in China believing in this kind of thinking. When China began opening up to the outside world in 1979, after the long nightmare of the Cultural Revolution, you had the same fears. Conservatives in the government feared the after-effects of adopting too much from the West, especially policies that borrowed heavily from capitalism, the fear of what new political ideas Chinese students in the early 1980s might pick up studying overseas was also a great concern. But the great one, Deng Xiaoping, he just came out and said his famous words, quote, if you open the window, some flies naturally get in. The same ideological battle was being fought in the early 20th century in China. They wanted the hardware, not the software. The feeling amongst a lot of traditional Chinese was, we'll take the tools, you know, you can keep the values. Well, about a hundred days later, it's time for Cixi to make her move. Her coterie of shoe-shining advisors and confidants misled her and fed her all kinds of, let's say, not entirely true information about alleged machinations that the reform clique was up to and how they were manipulating the Emperor Guangxu. Rumors ultimately made their way to Kang Youwei, who learned that the chief eunuch, Li Lianying, Rong Lu, and others were conspiring over at the Summer Palace and that they were going to quash this whole movement. 
On September 18, 1898, reform leaders meet with Yuan Shikai, the deputy minister of war then, and asked him, on behalf of the emperor, Guangxu, to send troops to kill Ronglu and arrest Cixi. Yuan Shikai says, okay, no problem. Then he goes and spills the beans to Ronglu. Now, I haven't said much about Ronglu, but he's a pretty major character, behind the scenes and front and center, ever since Cixi seized power in 1861. He was uh, Cixi's cousin and alleged lover prior to her becoming the Xianfeng Emperor's concubine. He was part of her hardcore right-wing kitchen cabinet, or cabal, or whatever by this time, and was one of her closest advisors. So once this is learned, Cixi decides to take back control and leaves her place of retirement in the Summer Palace and storms into the Forbidden City. In all the rage that this formidable lady could muster, she screams at the emperor and, in so many words, says, you know, how could you, how dare you, and so on and so forth. Guangxu emperor, he falls apart like a house of cards, and he's led away to a kind of house arrest, banished to an island in the center of Kunming Lake at the Summer Palace. And I'm sure he had a good view of the marble boat. Well, Kang Yo Wei and Liang Qi Chao managed to elude their captors and escape to Japan. Cixi was suitably outraged that the two biggest fish slipped away. They did get six other reform leaders, including Kang's brother, and they were all executed. And that was that. From June to September 1898, a tad over a hundred days since it started, this touch of Prague Spring or whatever, this hope that reform was finally going to come, vanished in an instant. In 1898, just before Cixi made her move to silence these reformers, the good old Yellow River once again had some major flooding in Shandong. And whenever this happened, misery followed. And wherever there was misery, people became desperate. And it was these kinds of desperate times that produced groups like the like the Red Eyebrows or the Chermei during the time of Wang Mang's short-lived Xing Dynasty. Same with the Yellow Turbans during the reign of Emperor Ling of the Han Dynasty. And then you had the White Lotus Rebellion during the time of Qianlong and the Red Turbans of the Taiping era. All were born out of times of chaos in the countryside. At this time, during the turn of the century, amidst all this desperation, a lot of these people sort of coalesced together, and this is how the boxers sort of formed up. They began up in Shandong province by seizing and destroying property owned by foreign missionaries, the ones farther from the treaty port areas were the easiest ones to get picked off. As this movement grew, more riffraff living on the fringes of economically ravaged Shandong joined in the fun. Finally, it got so bad that the local government you know, leans on them and sort of forces the boxers out of Shandong. The boxers at the outset were a anti-Qing force in nature, but they shifted their outrage to foreigners in general and missionaries in particular. The conservatives back in the palace were at first very hopeful upon hearing about these boxers with their alleged mystical powers that made them invincible. Having been pushed out of Shandong in June of 1900, the boxers made their way to Beijing. Since this is where most of the foreigners were, it was easy for these xenophobic rebels to get at them. There was no uh, leadership amongst the boxers. There was no Hong Xiuquan figure like the Taipings had. They were all simply united in their feelings of ending all these privileges that all these foreigners enjoyed. Along the way to Beijing, they killed, looted, 
destroyed railroad tracks and telegraph poles, all signs associated with the West. When they entered Beijing unopposed, fighting broke out immediately. On July 11th, a Japanese diplomat was murdered by a boxer mob, and then two days later, the boxers went on a rampage, burning churches and killing worshippers. Word, of course, spread, and the Western powers all allied together, and on June 17th, they seized the Daku forts in Tianjin to allow for a naval landing force. Now, up to this time, Cixi's handlers and minders were all feeding her erroneous information about what was actually going on. Once the Daku forts were seized, they all said, you see, see, see what these guys are doing? You have to declare war on them. And that's what she did, and boy, did she ever live to regret that. Hearing about the capture of the Daku forts, Cixi sits on her hands and allows the boxers to lay siege to the foreign legation quarter. All the Westerners barricaded themselves inside and awaited some miraculous rescue. There were all kinds of atrocities going on, and foreign journalists all dutifully sent their dispatches back to the major papers of Europe, describing the killing and what would become known as the so-called Yellow Peril. The Empress Dowager Cixi had said of the foreigners and her reasons for standing up to them, quote, The foreigners have been aggressive towards us, infringed on our territorial integrity, trampled our people under their feet. The common people suffer greatly at their hands and each one of them is vengeful. Thus it is that the brave boxers have been burning churches and killing Christians. The boxers, they spread out and oozed into other provinces, causing the same kind of havoc there, burning, attacking, and killing, wherever a mission compound can be found. On June 21st, 1900, Cixi refers to the boxers as a loyal militia and issues a declaration of war against the foreign powers. The boxers, emboldened by the old Buddha, siding with them, committed even more atrocities. The most violent among them in Shanxi, Hebei, and Henan. The worst was in Shanxi. The Manchu Qing governor there had actually summoned all the missionaries and foreigners to come to the capital for protection against the boxers. All the foreigners who had received this urgent call flocked to the capital in uh, Taiyuan to the protection of the governor, but instead, once they were all in one place, the governor stepped back and allowed the boxers to just wipe them out. Forty-four souls in all, all slaughtered, men, women, and children. By the end of June 1900, 14,000 troops assembled at the Daku forts. In July, another 17,000 joined up. These combined forces included the usual suspects, German, French, British, American, Russian, and Japanese, this combined force, it captured Tianjin on July 13th. August 4th, they start to head west to try and save the day for all the foreigners holed up in the legation area. They meet up with Qing army resistance, but they're just mowed down, and it becomes obvious that nothing's going to be able to stop this allied army. So on August 11th, Cixi and her gang, including the emperor, they all flee the capital. Cixi and the emperor, they fled disguised as peasants and were rolled out of the palace in wooden carts, and they head west to Xi'an and set up a temporary government in exile. On August 14th, 1900, the siege of the legation quarter is lifted. This drama is immortalized in the 1963 Charlton Heston film, 55 Days to Peking, Hollywood's take on the Boxer Rebellion with Caucasians, Leo Glenn playing the role of Rong Lu, and Robert Heltman as Prince Duan. 
Li Hongzhang, once again the favorite envoy of the Qing government, is called out to deal with the negotiations. He didn't have a whole lot of bargaining power, and no one tried to kill him this time. So what Li Hongzhang had to sign his name to became known as the Boxer Protocol of September 7, 1902. The upshot to the Boxer Rebellion called for civil service exams to be canceled for five years in all the parts of China where the gentry had collaborated with the boxers. They also had to pay an impossible indemnity of 450 million taels, which was, uh, at that time, uh, two times the annual government revenues. This indemnity was payable in gold over 40 years, with interest, of course. So now the Chinese were even worse off now than they were before Cixi sided with the boxers. In addition to this, the protocol called for monuments to be erected in the memory of the approximately 200 Westerners killed in the uprising. China was forbidden to import arms and munitions for two years. To add to the humiliating terms of the Boxer Protocol, the foreign powers were allowed to station permanent guards and keep defensive weapons to protect the foreign legation quarters. The informal Zongli Yamen that had always served as the Qing Emperor's foreign ministry was officially turned into the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The leading boxers of the uprising, who were caught, uh, were all executed, and the Shanxi governor, who had allowed all the foreigners to be killed up in Taiyuan, was also executed. But earlier in the year, on uh, January 8, 1901, Cixi had officially sent out an edict calling for reform. And these reforms that she pushed for were even more far-reaching and radical than those of the ill-fated 100 Days of Reform. And you know what? After the uh, Boxer Rebellion, the Empress Dowager became quite the hostess and charming personality. She posed for photos with foreigners, hosted little events at the palace for foreign women, and in her last years became the face of change. It was an entirely new ballgame now, and there was no turning their backs on the West and hoping they would go away. It was really do or die for China. After China's bitter defeat at the hands of Japan in 1895, and especially after the Hundred Days of Reform, Chinese nationalism began to sprout. By the end of the 19th century, foreigners were grabbing land all over China. You had every great power carving out their own little spheres of influence and remaking the cities how they like. As I said in the last episode, Dalian has a nice old Russian feel to it in some parts, and old Qingdao resembles a German city in some areas. I don't know what else it would take to spur on nationalism than this. Foreigners were pouring into China now and doing the usual outrageous things that foreigners do to trample on all the various Chinese cultural sensibilities. People were outraged everywhere. As far as fueling nationalistic tendencies, there were three events where these feelings sort of spilled over. First was the Boxer Uprising, which we just discussed. The second was the publication in 1903 of the Revolutionary Army by Zhou Rong. And last was the anti-American boycott in 1905. Let's look at uh, Zhou Rong, a person from Chinese history who didn't live too long, but who made a great impact. Zhou was a student who had spent time in Japan, like so many other young aspiring scholars and Chinese revolutionaries. In his great work, The Revolutionary Army, Zhou Rong wrote the definitive indictment against the Manchu rulers of China. Never before had everything been laid out so clearly, succinctly, and with so much meaning. In The Revolutionary Army, Zhou basically called for all Chinese to rise up and seize the day. 
He called Sun Guofan and his ilk lackeys of the Manchus and, even worse, butchers of Chinese. He called for elected assemblies, equality of rights for women, freedom of the press and of assembly. Zhou was arrested for his work and charged with distributing inflammatory writings. He was thrown in prison and ended up dying two years later in 1905. He was only 19 years old. So declared in the Revolutionary Army, and I'll quote, Countrymen, you must all recognize the China of the Chinese of the Han race. Any obligations subordinating people to the Manchus are one and all annulled. Overthrow the barbaric government set up by the Manchus in Peking and expel the Manchus settled in China or kill them in order to revenge ourselves. Kill the emperor set up by the Manchus as a warning to the myriad of generations that despotic governments are not to be revised. Oppose any intervention directed either by Chinese nationals or from foreign soil against Chinese revolutionary independence. Set up a central government which will act as a general body to run affairs. The whole population, whether male or female, are citizens. Everybody in the country, whether male or female, is equal. There is no distinction between upper and lower, base and noble. And then, to show his Jeffersonian stripes, Zhou also said that all inalienable rights are bestowed by nature. The freedom to live and all other privileges are natural rights. Freedoms, such as that of speech, thought, the press, etc., cannot be infringed on. So this important work by Zhou Rong was read by a certain Sun Zhongshan, who we will get to in a minute. Sun Zhongshan passed Zhou's work around to his overseas contacts in San Francisco and Singapore. Sun Zhongshan is better known in the West as Sun Yat-sen. Let's quickly look at a, a third manifestation of the rise of Chinese nationalism, the anti-American boycott of June 1905. You know, it all began in 1882 with the anti-Chinese exclusion laws in the U.S. and their enforced ratification by treaty. These were signed into law by our illustrious 21st president, Chester A. Arthur. Essentially, these exclusion laws prohibited Chinese immigration into the USA. This lasted until it was repealed in 1943. You see, Chinese immigrants poured into the U.S. in the 1840s and 50s to take part in the California gold rush. And after a while, when much of the gold had been mined and it became more scarce, well, the Chinese miners were pushed out by the American miners, and well, they ended up settling in places like San Francisco and L.A. In short, the Chinese weren't warmly welcomed wherever they went, and you had all kinds of incidents of violence, fighting, and endless hostile acts. Basically, it was a sad chapter in U.S. immigration history, right up there with the imprisonment of the Japanese-American citizens during World War II. Word of these new exclusion laws, of course, made it back to China and was not warmly received. Not only were regular Chinese affected, but even visiting VIPs in the U.S. on official business were caught up in this wave of anti-Chinese feeling. In response to this outrage, in June of 1905, merchants in Guangzhou, Shanghai, Xiamen, Tianjin declared a boycott of American goods. This included cigarettes, cotton, kerosene, flour, and of course, the American diplomats, they all leaned on the Qing government to go and do something about this, and the, the Qing officials dutifully complied with the wishes of the Americans, but they did so as unenthusiastically as possible. 
it said when the proclamations by the government against the boycott were pasted up around the cities, you know, the notices were hung upside down to show contempt for the content that was printed on it. The point was made, and by September 1905, Chinese merchants gradually began importing and distributing U.S.-made products again. So again, this wasn't a high point in U.S.-China relations. The ones who were out in the streets and really imbued with the revolutionary and nationalistic spirit were the overseas Chinese students in Japan, Europe, and the U.S., along with the women, merchants, and the exploding class of urban workers. The peasants, for the most part, still lived in their own world and were a million miles away from the talk of reform and doing away with the emperor. So it's in 1905 that the movement for a constitution starts to finally gain some traction. The great minds of the day had concluded that the reason why China's attempts at reform and modernizing failed was because it was a constitution that was at the very heart of all the Western and Japanese success stories. So the question became, given China's particular situation, which constitutional model was best suited for China? So Cixi makes this dramatic gesture in 1905 and orders the formation of a small study group of five princes and officials, three Manchu, two Chinese. Their mission impossible was to scour the world's powerful nations and determine which was the best constitutional model for China. So the group arrives in Washington, D.C. in January 1906, and then they went to Europe and lastly to Japan. And when they came back and had their audience with Cixi, uh, they announced their findings, and I'm sure it won't surprise you to know Japan was the best model for China to follow. The comparisons were obvious, and if you ask me, they should have just spared the world tour and just gone with Japan. One interesting note, when uh, Liang Qichao was in the U.S. He met with then-President Theodore Roosevelt and had some exposure to American politics. Liang wasn't too impressed. He wrote during this visit that American democracy spawned, quote, mediocre politicians, corruption, disorder, racism, and imperialism. November 1906, Cixi issues an edict whereby she promised to draw up a constitution and reform the administration structure in China. This included reshaping and shuffling the ministries, dealing with corrupt governors general in the provinces, and most important, to convene a national assembly. It had been eight years now since the hundred days of reform had ended. Eight years completely wasted. So naturally, the argument flared up again about how exactly to reform, what was the best method, best systems, who benefits, who loses. After a period of debate and late 1908, the imperial court announces that a full constitutional government will be established over the next nine years. And then, November 1908, Cixi, the empress dowager, dies peacefully, and the very next day, coincidentally, maybe not, the Guangxu emperor dies, just like that. A regency was established for the new emperor, conveniently two years old, and this new regency is stuffed with Manchus, and this fills the Chinese faction at court with all kinds of trepidation. So, who was this new emperor? He was the Guangxu emperor's nephew, and the eldest son of the second Prince Chun. We call him the second to differentiate him from his father, the first Prince Chun. The first Prince Chun was the father to the Guangxu emperor, which made him Puyi's grandfather. The first Prince Chun was the seventh son of the Daoguang emperor. The Daoguang emperor, of course, being the monarch on duty during the First Opium War. 
So two-year-old Puyi becomes the new emperor at the end of 1908, and his father, the second prince Chun, is his regent. It's now that all the consultative provincial assemblies were meeting to start hashing out a constitution and who would be the delegates and who would comprise the National Assembly, as yet unformed. So let's talk about Sun Yat-sen. He's a very important figure in Chinese history. You can see an iconic picture of Sun that I use in iTunes for the China History Podcast. Sun Yat-sen gets a lot more credit than he might have deserved at that time. The KMT, or Kuomintang, version of the history sort of builds up Sun's reputation and his role in the revolution. He's still deserving of the title Father of Modern China, or at least the Republic of China. But Sun died sort of an early death, and in order for his heir, Chiang Kai-shek, to have that necessary legitimacy... Sun's role in the Xinhai Geming, or Xinhai Revolution, of October 1911 to February 1912 is maybe a little overstated. Sun actually becomes much more critical in the 1920s than in the beginning when the emperor abdicated. But we're jumping way ahead. Let's take a look at Sun's rise and why he's so important. Sun was born in 1866 and died in 1925, living only 59 years. Sun Yat-sen is one Chinese hero who both the communists and the nationalists agree on. Sun is an exalted historical person revered both on the mainland and in Taiwan. He didn't come from privilege, but he did have family who had emigrated to Hawaii. In the early 1880s, Sun traveled to Hawaii, and his older brother ensured he had a good Christian upbringing, attending one of the local mission schools there. Hawaii at this time isn't a state of the Union yet and had yet to be annexed by the U.S. It's it's here where Sun Yat-sen gets his first understanding of Christianity, democracy, and Republican government systems. Sun Yat-sen later ends up in Hong Kong, and he was he was a southerner from Guangdong province, so he fit in there, you know, nice and easy. And he graduated with a medical degree from a college in Hong Kong, but the British wouldn't let him practice, and Chinese at the time were still highly suspicious of Western medicine. So in 1894, he's back in Hawaii, where he forms a secret society called the Revive China Society, the Xing Zhonghui. Their slogan was Chu Zhu Da Lu, Hui Fu Zhonghua, Jian Li He Zhong Zhengfu expel Manchus, revive Zhonghua or China, and establish a unified government. I mean, this is pretty much how everyone felt, so there was nothing unique in this slogan. Sun launches the secret society while the Sino-Japanese War is getting underway. So in 1895, Sun moves back to Hong Kong after raising money from his brother's connections in Hawaii, and there he begins to mix with other secret societies. He attempts to stage a few uprisings, but everything's found out by the Qing authorities, and nothing happens. Sun is later forced to flee to Japan, where he stays a while before moving on to San Francisco and then London. He studies more in London and sets himself up there. But alas, Sun is propelled to international attention after a clumsy kidnap attempt by the Qing government agents working out of the legation there in London. So the British government intervenes in the matter, and Sun is now a bit of a sensation. So a much more well-known Sun Yat-sen makes his way back to Southeast Asia and Japan, trying to organize and mesh with other secret societies. One guy who really liked what he was hearing from Sun Yat-sen was a guy we know as Charlie Song, Song Jia-shu. He was born in Wenchang on the northeast corner of Hainan Island, a province of China known as the 
known as the Hawaii of China. He met Sun Yat-sen during a Sunday service at a church in Shanghai in 1894. Charlie Song by then had made a fortune in Bible printing and later in noodles. He was Sun Yat-sen's main financial backer and funded a lot of his work leading up to and after the Xinhai Rebellion. Both of these guys benefited immensely from their relationship. Charlie Song is sometimes called the Joe Kennedy Sr. in that his four children later played huge roles in a lot of the history of China in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. His children were Song Ailing, who was the wife of H.H. H. Kong, a wealthy banker and once the richest man in China. Song Qingling, who later married Sun Yat-sen and was a revered figure in China until the day she died in 1981. The third child was T.V. Song, an important figure in Shanghai finance, who was followed by the baby, Song Meiling, who later became the wife of Jiang Kai-shek and, and who just passed away in 2003 at the ripe old age of 105. No one knows for absolute certain how old she was when she died. All of the songs will be featured in a future podcast episode. They were quite the amazing family. So between Charlie Song's money and Sun's newly acquired pedigree after his dramatic kidnapping in London, Sun Yat-sen starting to make a name for himself. In 1905, he allies himself with a number of other secret societies and forms the Revolutionary Alliance, or Tongmeng Hui. This group's ideas included a mixture of Sun's Republican ideology, a little socialist theory, as well as controlling capital development. Sun's philosophy was much more aggressive and radical than that still being espoused by Kang Youwei. Kang had yet to give up on the hope that China could move forward into the future, keeping the imperial family on the throne through constitutional monarchy or by other means. Between 1906 and 1911, the Tongmeng Hui instigated seven uprisings and had grown from 400 members to over 10,000 by 1911. The Sun was extremely successful in organizing and raising money. Sun's brilliance and importance during this stage, during the final years of the dynasty, was that he was able to gain the support of everyone he worked with. He was an amazing salesman for the revolution and a great organizer. This was his genius more than being a fired-up speaker or a great inspirational writer. It was how he reached out and touched the triad societies, the labor organizations, you know, those engaged in agriculture, as well as, you know, disaffected army units. He was a he was a great facilitator. And when the end came for the beleaguered Qing dynasty, Sun wasn't even in China. It was as if they started the revolution without him. Here's how it all went down. The date was October 9th, 1911, which in most places is written 9 10 11. Of course, in my country, it's 10 9 11. Uh, Sun Yat sen was in the USA fundraising and was on a train somewhere in between Denver and Kansas City when, on the other side of the world, a bomb suddenly goes off in the Russian concession in the city of Hanko. The bomb was a terrorist device that was being assembled by one cell or another of some revolutionary group. It went off by mistake and injured the bomb makers, and the Russians called in the Qing authorities who started questioning the would-be revolutionaries. And it's this, this forced confession that was surely to come from the mouths of these captured terrorists, or whatever you want to call them, that ignited the fuse that brought down the Qing dynasty. You see, by this time, the army units of the new Qing army that were supposedly still loyal to the Qing were also very tight with one secret society or revolutionary group or another. 
The army was riddled with sympathizers, and it was this group of soldiers who feared that they might be found out thanks to the ways of the Qing police interrogators. So rather than wait for the axe to fall, these soldiers of the 8th Engineer Battalion in their barracks in the city of Wuchang across the river from Hankou rose up and seized the local ammunition depot. Then word spread quickly, and then others started spontaneously joining in. It was like what just happened in Tunisia after that guy set himself on fire. Suddenly, everything started happening very quickly. So Wu Chang fell to the mutineers on the fateful day of 10-10-11, October 10th, which is celebrated as Double Ten Day in Taiwan. Hanyang fell on the 11th and Hanko on the 12th. Wu Chang, Hanyang, and Hanko are the tri-cities that make up the metropolis known as Wuhan. Wuhan is also called the Chicago of China, lies strategically right at the middle reaches of the Yangtze River. At this point, Yuan Shikai is called back to service. He had actually been dismissed as governor general of Tianjin in 1910 and took it graciously, but it was sort of a snub. After Li Hongzhang's death, Yuan had inherited Li's entire power base up in the Tianjin area. Now the Qing court needed him back. Remember, he had supported Cixi after she moved against the reformers after the Hundred Days of Reform Movement and had also represented China well in Korea before the Sino-Japanese War. But Yuan Shikai didn't snap to attention. He bided his time and waited for a while to see which way the wind was blowing. It wasn't blowing in the direction of the Qing imperial court. One by one, in Hunan, Shanxi, Shanxi, Yunnan, Jiangxi, the new army units there sided with the mutineers. On December 25, 1911, Sun Yat-sen makes his triumphant return to Shanghai. After the Wuchang uprising, he left the United States and made his way to Europe to gauge the reaction to all that was happening. He was able to convince leaders in Britain not to advance any more loans to the Qing imperial court. Now he was back in China, and on December 29, 1911, delegates from 16 provisional assemblies meeting in Nanjing elect Sun Yat-sen as provisional president of the Chinese Republic, and he assumes office on January 1, 1912, declaring the establishment of the Zhonghua Minguo, or the Republic of China. As his first act, Sun changes the calendar system in China to the Western-style solar calendar. And soon after, he sends a telegram to Yuan Shikai, hoping to get the military strongman's support. Sun admitted his lack of a strong military base and selflessly tells Yuan in a telegram that the presidency of the republic, quote, is actually waiting for you and my offer will eventually be made clear to the world. I hope you will soon decide to accept the offer. So now you had the Republic of China with Sun, still the provisional president, and you also had an emperor who had not yet officially been relieved of duty. So what to do in this case? By the end of January 1912, 44 senior commanders of the Northern Beiyang Army sent a telegram to the Beijing cabinet urging formation of the Republic of China. Once the great Beiyang Army opted not to side with the emperor, the Qing rulers decided the game was up. Now it was time to negotiate for their very survival. Puyi's mother, Yolan, was married to the second Prince Chun and was the daughter of Ronglu, one of the Empress Dowager's closest companions going back to childhood. She lived a very tragic life. Anyway, she did the best she could under the circumstances. She tried to negotiate an arrangement that allowed the emperor to remain in the Forbidden City and play a ceremonial role in the government. 
In the end, the provisional government agreed to guarantee Pu Yi and his family the right to stay in the Forbidden City and to own all the great imperial treasures. They were given a $4 million a year stipend to live on. All Manchu ancestral temples were to be protected. It was the best she could get under the circumstances. And on Lincoln's birthday, February 12, 1912, the last emperor, Pu Yi, abdicated. Just about 2,133 years had passed since Qin Shi Huang established the Qing dynasty and had become the first emperor. And just like that, the history of imperial China was over. And once the great Qing had fallen, it was the same as when almost every dynasty ended. There followed a period of classic disunity, as bloody and chaotic as there ever was before, and for the most part, from the end of the Qing in 1912 until just after Mao Zedong and the communists liberated China in 1949, it was non-stop fighting. And other than a very brief period in the 1930s amidst all this upheaval, China was not what you would call a fully functioning state. So, we're going to end our little dynasty overview right here. Over the period of the next month or two, we'll trace what happened after 1912. We'll look at the warlord period and the northern expedition, the rise of Chiang Kai-shek, the beginnings of the Chinese Communist Party, and who were the players before Mao became the leader. We'll look at the Japanese invasion and the war of resistance, how China feared in the First and Second World Wars, and of course, the civil war that culminated with the establishment of the People's Republic of China on October 1st, 1949. So we still have a lot to go, and we have until the end of time to keep coming back again and again to revisit all these different dynasties in China and focus in on all the things we merely glanced at in these overviews. So I hope you'll all stay tuned for that. And so that's it for now. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the Crown Plaza down the street from LAX. I and my colleague from Ningbo are on our way to good old Bentonville, Arkansas tomorrow morning to pay a visit to a certain company there, and it's not Tyson Foods or J.B. Hunt Trucking. So I'm bivouacking next to the airport tonight so that we can get out of here early and not have to deal with the traffic from lovely Claremont, California to LAX. Thanks for hanging in there if you made it this far. Now that this Dynasty overview is finito, I promise you the weekly episode lengths will be cut down considerably. That's the plan, anyway. I hope everyone who requested this Dynasty overview series thoroughly enjoyed it and found it somewhat informative. Take care, everyone, and we hope to see you next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.